Well, let me uh, frame a little of this, uh, of these ideas about um, Buddhism and the steps. Uh, and um, maybe start some more conversation. Uh, someone just asked me if I was going to be telling any stories uh, or talking about some of the things in my books, and I um, realize I don't usually do that, but but I do find it uh, sometimes on this beginning night to talk a little bit about my own journey with this process. Um, when I... Uh, well, first of all, just to say that, uh, you know, if you really want to hear my whole drunkalogue, invite me to speak at your meeting. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I started drinking at 16. I came from this classic kind of Irish Catholic alcoholic family that was, everything looked good. And, uh, and uh, you know, I came of age in the 60s and so uh, drugs immediately became, like within a year of starting to drink, I started to take drugs and they came, you know, they all were kind of blended together. And in some ways my story was upside down in terms of, uh, you know, you're supposed to kind of drink more and more and more until you finally hit bottom. And, and really my drinking and drug use were heaviest in my teenage and early 20s years. And then I, then I got control. Um, which was also something I kind of inherited from my father who drank in this very controlled way, at least when I knew him. I was, I was the youngest in my family. My older brothers tell me he drank uh, more out of control when he was younger. But um, I, And I kind of figured, you know, I wanted to be a musician and, and uh, part of the, I want, right up until I wanted to, until I was 14, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I would decide to be a musician. You can see there was kind of not much coherence in any of that. My father was a lawyer. You know, my oldest brother was a lawyer. So I was just trying to be following their footsteps. Uh, maybe if I hadn't smoked all the pot, I could have been a lawyer. But nowadays, when I think about trying to think like that, I, I just don't think I have the brain power. Um, yeah. But, uh, of course, being a musician was a perfect uh, lifestyle for an addict uh, uh, because it didn't show. You know, it was organic to the, to the lifestyle. You're working in bars, um, and, uh, you know, it was assumed that you were taking drugs. Uh, the musicians that didn't take drugs were sort of oddballs, you know, outsiders, rejected, you know. You wouldn't even hire them to be in your band, you know, if you didn't get high. Like, maybe he's a narc, you know. Uh, but uh, as I say, you know, once I became, you know, I started out with a, a lot of uh, uh, fantasies and ideals about about being a musician and just doing original music and all that, and then then I uh, had to make a living and uh, wound up wearing a polyester suit and a flowered shirt, playing in the Holiday Inn in, you know, Providence, Rhode Island, you know, and, and uh, actually I never played in Providence just as well. It's a kind of a gangster town, if you know it, but uh, all over New England. And, uh, and um, 
you know, like like any good alcoholic, I gave up all my values to uh, hold on to the lifestyle that I wanted. I mean, here I was, I thought I was an artist, and uh, I was playing disco music, you know. And um, some of which was, you know, all right, you could dance to it anyway. Um, but uh, the good thing about being a musician for me was that uh, I had to be conscious at like 2 o'clock in the morning. So, so I couldn't drink myself into oblivion every night. Uh, maybe afterwards I could, but uh, but generally, uh, you know, I would I had to maintain this kind of uh, structure, and this is this is my controlling personality that I would smoke a certain amount of pot during the day, and then I would start to drink after the first set. You know, I'd get through the first set, and then I, you know, okay, now I'm okay, now I can get high more some more, and um, so it was all there was this you know control, 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 except for the times when I would not, right. <laughs> would be periodic, uh, pretty regularly. Uh, but for me, there was also always this thread of longing for something spiritual, something that I see in a lot of people in recovery. And um, I thought of it, I used to think of it as these two parallel uh, lives. There's this part of me, even, even as a young kid, I was very, a very devout Catholic kid and an altar boy and you know, I actually was an altar boy when the mass was in Latin, which was great because you didn't know what they were saying. You know, and I really liked the sound of the Latin. And then, uh, you know, when they turned it English, fortunately it was as I was drifting over. But then I was like, that's what they were saying? <laughs> What? I'm out of here. You know. So I always liked that kind of mystical aspect of, of religion. You know, that, that it was more a heart thing, connecting with it. And uh, it, as uh, in my late teenage years, I started, you know, all the things that were popular, and you know, like astrology and and uh, Edgar Casey. Anybody remember him? You know, and and I actually. Uh, went to some Scientology meetings, uh, read Dianetics. I was very impressed. I was living in a mental hospital at the time, so <laughs> my judgment may not have been the best. And then they asked me for money, and again, I was like, no, forget it. If you have to pay for it, it's, it can't be real. Um, so there was, but there was this running thread, and of course, when the Beatles started doing TM, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn to meditate. Ten years later, I got around to learning to meditate. Um, main problem being that you had to stop smoking pot for two weeks. That was re- I thought that was really kind of asking a lot. You know, I mean, you know, I can see you know, maybe not the day before, right? But for two weeks, I had not I had not taken a day off from smoking pot for nine years when I learned TM. So I took those two weeks off, and it was. It was very interesting. I had a lot of energy during those two weeks. And I didn't know where it was coming from, but I found that alcohol was a good way of suppressing it. And um, because they didn't say anything about not drinking in the TM manual. So. But I learned TM when I was 28. Um, I was living in Burlington, Vermont at the time in an amazing Afrofusion band. 
See, this guy asked me for stories. You're getting your stories. You know, so, um, but uh, as soon as I learned TM, I went back to smoking pot. So the TM, the meditation didn't really take. I just, I did it very ritualistically. I did it very religiously, twice a day, 20 minutes, whether I was stoned or not, you know, whether I was drunk or not. I sat down and tried to remember what my mantra was for 20 minutes. Uh, so there was this obvious sort of disjunction between this part of me that, you know, obviously wanted something and then a part of me that wasn't able to let go. Uh, eventually I uh, found Buddhism and got very serious about Buddhist practice. Uh, but uh, again, uh, I wasn't letting go. I wasn't seeing that drugs and alcohol were a problem. I think this is very common. It's, usually called denial. Uh, I don't know that I was denying it. I, I didn't know it, know it enough to deny it. Uh, but, um, and, and I, I've been reading a book in manuscript recently that's uh, about spiritual bypass, which is a great term for, and I was certainly suffering from, which means that you try to use spirituality as a way of fixing things in your life that really don't have anything to do with spirituality. Like I thought that if I meditated and got enlightened, that then I'd become a rock and roll star. You know? <laughs> it's like there's no real connection. I mean, maybe there is. I don't know. But, um, and that, that I would stop being depressed if I meditated more, which, you know, again, meditation can be useful for depression, but it's not a one-to-one correspondence. I, in other words, I was kind of trying to use spirituality as a drug. You know, take this, meditate this certain amount, and you'll get this magical thing. Not, oh, I'll meditate and start to explore my emotions and maybe work with the depression. No, it wasn't about that. It was, let me get this experience that'll bliss me out so I won't feel these feelings anymore. So because of that, and I went on a three-month retreat, and, and I didn't get fixed. And soon after that, within six months of that, I kind of abandoned Buddhism and went off with this guru. Was somewhat, somewhat of this story is in both of my books. And, and just kind of uh, very new agey, magical thinking, uh, just trust me, just believe me, and you'll become enlightened. And, uh, and I wound up homeless and uh, penniless living on the streets of Venice Beach, um, kind of going, what just happened? You know, what did I just do? I just blew up my life uh, to follow this guy. And that was kind of the end of my innocence as a, as a meditator, as a spiritual seeker. And it, I kind of started to rebuild my life. And that was three years before I got sober. So I had a lot of rebuilding just to get up to the, I had to get up to my bottom was basically what I had to do, you know. I was below my bottom, right? Yeah, it happens, right? You don't even, it's like, and more things have to be fixed before I could even address drugs and alcohol. When you're living in the street, drugs and alcohol are a reasonable solution to your problems, you know. They are completely uh, appropriate. Um, so when I came into AA and I, saw your power, admitted you were powerless over alcohol, you know, it, it, uh, it kind of worked for me. It wasn't how I had thought of it. It's not what I thought my problem was. 
that I was powerless over alcohol. But I could see that um, one of the things that happened was that I would drink, and sometimes I would drink moderately, and sometimes I wouldn't. But I wouldn't have any, I wouldn't have any foreknowledge of which was going to happen, which that seemed to be an indication that I wasn't controlling my relationship to alcohol. So I could say, okay, that, that kind of fits with this idea of powerlessness. And with marijuana, which was my other drug of choice, uh, I, I saw how um, if I smoked pot one day, I wanted to get high the next day. But if I stopped for a few days, the craving kind of went down. And so, again, it was like the, the experience itself stimulates this craving. And, it, and it, uh, when the craving gets too strong, then I can't say no. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I kind of see triggers as a really important thing to look at at the beginning of recovery. Uh, that if I can just not do it, um, it weakens the desire to do it. And this is the law of karma. Right? The, the law of karma says that the more you do something, the more you will tend to do it. You will habituate that behavior. The less you do something, the less power that habit will have. And gradually you will unhabituate or unlearn that behavior. Um, so I think for many people, uh, Early recovery is the hardest time in terms of relapse. Uh, once the the karmic habit is uh, diffused, then uh, it really becomes down to uh, your ability to manage crises and uh, your own delusion. If you have the delusion that, oh right, I'm I can do this now because I haven't had a drink in 10 years. Or if you, have, or if you are overwhelmed by uh, crises and fall back, uh, those are, seem to be the types of things that trigger relapse in people who have been sober for a while. But, um, but the early stage, it's, it's really about this karmic stuff and uh, that, um, the power of the craving. I mean, this is the, the fundamental Buddhist teaching. So this is uh, an appropriate thing to talk about on the first night of a class. The Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the foundation of all Buddhist traditions. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, the truth of the way to the end of suffering. Each of those, of course, is a lengthy talk within itself. But the first two are the ones that are uh, really of concern to us, particularly around step one. The truth of suffering, you know, around addiction, the truth that we're ad- addicted, you know, coming out of denial. Right? So this is, the Buddha is pointing to this way that people want to not see suffering, want to avoid it without ever really addressing it and understanding it so that we spend uh, our lives in this uh, frantic chase after pleasure and away from pain. And, and it creates this stress, this anxiety, this thing he calls dukkha. Uh, and he says, no, just stop. Look at it. Experience it. Be with it. Just as we talked about with the trauma. That the only way 
you're going to come to peace is if you can allow this in. And so then the second noble truth is that what causes your suffering is this chasing after pleasure and pushing away pain. It's craving and it's trying to hold on to pleasure, trying to push away pain. So this is what we're doing in our addiction. Exactly what we're doing, right? Um, and when we step into recovery, we see this very starkly. Because while the craving is there, but the action isn't, then we're faced with, wow, the, the pain here is my desire. The pain isn't that I don't have what I want. And this is what the Buddha was pointing out, the very subtle and brilliant insight. The problem isn't that I, I'm not having the experience that I want. The problem is that I'm wanting to have the experience I'm not having. That's an interesting way to express it. The pain is right here in the wanting. And what he says is, you don't have to get this thing to make you feel okay. Because all that happens when you get that is that you habituate this behavior of trying to get something. Yeah, you'll have a moment of pleasure or of relief but then the same thing will just kick in again. And this is addiction, right? So what you have to face and be with and come to terms with is this, the craving itself. And the way to be free of suffering is to let go of the craving. Or, and that's you know, easier said than done, obviously. But let's put it another way. To allow the way to end suffering is to allow the craving to fade away as it will if we do not act on it. <coughs> desire is fed by desire. Desire is weakened by not acting on it. So the key to all Buddhist teachings, the key to relief from addiction. It's to watch the craving when it comes up. And this is not just about addiction, obviously. This is about life. This happens in meditation. Oh, if I could just stay with my breath, as I was talking about before. Oh, if I could just, just let me, you know, once I can just let go of all my thoughts and just be here with my breath and do it right, then I'll be okay. Not seeing that the problem in that moment right then isn't that you're having thoughts. You have thoughts all the time. It's not that you're not paying attention to your breath. So what? It's that you've set this thing up in your mind that things should be different from the way they are, and that's uncomfortable. You think that by making them the way you imagine they would be, you don't even know what it would feel like to not have thoughts and be with your breath. How do you know it's going to be so good? Maybe it'll be really boring. You know? It's just 
just we project these things that we want. That's going to fix me. Because this obviously isn't working the way things are right now. Ugh. It's got, there's got to be something better than this. I'll get enlightened. I'll go to the bar. I'll get laid. You know, something will take care of it. I'll get a relationship. I'll get a job. I'm unemployed. If I just had a job, you know that feeling? That just longing, like, oh, my God. Oh, that terrible feeling of being unemployed and the fear that comes with that. And then you get a job. And for 12 hours, it's tremendous relief. And then you wake up in the morning and you go, oh, i got to go to work. You know. That's no solution to life. It's just another problem. So this is what our practice is trying to point us towards, is seeing this quality in ourselves. It's always longing. Now, did anybody get the idea that now they understand what they need to do is let go of their craving? So now I'm going to I'm going to get, let go of my craving. Now I've figured it out. And that sets up another desire, right? So this is a very delicate dance. And this is what powerlessness is pointing to as well. It's not saying, okay, you know, you, you've got, you're powerless over alcohol, so uh, just, you know, Whoa, watch out. Don't go around. Don't go to the bar. Don't do the, you know, uh, don't watch TV with the beer commercials, you know, because it's going to get you. Um, We, your thoughts are going to come. Your desires are going to come. So the solution isn't, let go of desire. Oh, yeah, sure, that's the ideal. That's full enlightenment, you know, no desires, supposedly. I don't, you know, have, we met, have you met anybody? The, the guru up there, yeah, they're telling you they're enlightened. Are they really? You know, do they really not have any desires? Look at how many Zen masters get caught in bed with their students. You know? So we're actually being asked to do much, something much more difficult. This is what the Buddha set out to do. He was going to let go of all his cravings. He thought that, you know, and so he almost starved himself to death, thinking that if I just stop acting on any craving, then I'll let go of this and I'll be free. Finally, he realized I'm just killing myself. He practically killed himself, and thank God he didn't. Or well, thank somebody he didn't. <laughs> he realized. This is when he came to this realization, what he calls the middle way. You know, just what alcoholics and addicts do not want to hear about. You know? We want to go from one extreme of being alcoholics to the other extreme. Now I'm going to be a monk. You know? I'm going to get pure and perfect. No, you know, the middle way is acknowledging that desire, it's just life, of course wanting stuff. It comes, it goes. Not wanting aversion. It's just part of life. Things are unpleasant. You know, I don't want it to be that way. How can I be with those things? Live with them without chasing after them, without pushing them away, without trying to be perfect, beat myself up, 
but without succumbing to the desires. Oh yeah, right. Forget it. You know, desires desires are endless. You know, so I'm just gonna go for it. I mean, that's the you know the addict way. It's the it's the the pleasure-seeking way. It's it's kind of what our culture tells us. Mindfulness is trying to establish this awareness, which allows us to be with whatever is happening without being overwhelmed. Yeah, we'll be pulled, we'll be pushed, we'll feel that, but it won't send us off in a tailspin. And it's, this is sobriety, right? This is when you, the word sobriety, apart from drugs and alcohol, when you say sober as a judge, you're talking about this kind of mind, a mind which is balanced and kind of wise and, and sees the way things are, doesn't really get thrown, it's just present, it's a fully alive. It doesn't mean that our emotions are shut down and that we're uh, you know, uh, drones. It's really, it's, it's really a beautiful place of balance uh, that really em- embraces life without being crushed by it, without being swamped by it. And this is what we're, when, when we come back to the, so this, this, a taste of this happens each time you notice that your mind is wandered and you come back to the breath. Not that, oh, I'm so focused on my breath, it's like I've got this pure, perfect laser attention. But rather that you, when you come back in that moment, you feel the relief and the release of letting go. And it's like, oh, I feel, I feel that craving, I feel that aversion, but I also feel what it's like to just be here. And I feel the, the, um, the balance of being here. Well, that is coming and going and moving through me. So this is why when I teach meditation, I don't say, just pay attention to your breath. I want you to experience your, the range of life and, be, and learn to be with it all without it killing you, without it taking you over. So there's a certain aspect, <coughs> just an element of detachment in this. Not total detachment, but a certain detachment. And it's actually um, natural to the mindful state. You don't have to make yourself be detached but rather uh, just when you connect with the present moment and with your own awareness, so that mindfulness itself, that quality, is just kind of a little bit above. It's kind of looking at experience. It's still fully engaged and fully touching it, but there's a realization that consciousness is not affected by the pleasant and the unpleasant. Consciousness is a pure uh, mental quality, which is behind all experience. Most of the time we can't perceive it. When we are being mindful, we're actually relating to our life, we're relating to that moment from this pure un. Uh, unsullied uh, place. 
again, we aren't trying to get into some exalted position, but it's just, it's a natural play, way of observing uh, the, our experience. Very powerful, very freeing to be able to come back to that. It's not that we're going to stay in this total place of observing and total mindfulness all the time. Now, on a meditation retreat, that's what we're trying to cultivate and develop that. And you may have periods of time on a retreat where you can get into a very present place. But, but actually, re what retreats show us more than anything is that even when we're devoting every moment of our waking day to trying to be mindful, that we still miss a whole lot that we still space out a lot. So that's more encouragement to be forgiving and kind to ourselves about it. Rather, that we're trying to just come back more often so that in those moments when craving comes up, when anger comes up, that there can be a remembering. Oh, right. I don't have to be totally caught up in this. I don't have to act on this craving. I don't have to be an addict in this moment. So there's an acceptance in practice that we are powerless over our minds, over our bodies, that we are powerless over the arising of desire, over the arising of hatred. But just in the same way that we say we are powerless over alcohol, that doesn't mean we have to act on it. Just because we recognize that we're powerless over drugs or alcohol or food, gambling, money, relationships. It doesn't mean we have to act on that addictive tendency. In the same way that we're powerless over craving, we're powerless over hatred. They come up and we can see it and then we don't have to act on it. This is very challenging. At first it's frightening. To see, even to look at the mind and to see the volume of craving in the mind. One practice, and you might try this this week, at least in one of your sittings, is as you're meditating, each time you have a thought, make a note and notice whether the thought is a thought of desire or a thought of aversion or something else. And if you find thoughts that are something else, I'll be interested to hear what they were. Because most of them, if not all, fall into one of these categories. So we see that we're powerless. And one of the things that we're doing in practice is that we are training ourselves to not act on craving. So you resolve, I'm going to sit here and do nothing. You know, people are like, what are you doing? People just sit there meditating with their eyes closed. Well, they're not accomplishing anything. That's true. <laughs> That's exactly what you're trying to do, is not accomplish anything. You're training yourself to not act on your thoughts, on your feelings, to just be with them, so that sometimes you can make that choice in your daily life as well. If you just sit there and space out for the whole time, you've still succeeded at that part of the practice, that you haven't done anything. And so you have not reacted to those thoughts in, in an outward way. 
which is the starting point, right? The physical, our actions, that's the one thing we can control more easily than the thoughts and feelings. Over time, yeah, you can cultivate uh, a qualities of more, a stronger concentration, uh, a stronger mindfulness that might uh, catch things more quickly or not get caught up with things more quickly. Uh, so don't worry about if you sit down and meditate and you forgot that you were supposed to pay attention to your breath. Uh, it's okay. You've still practiced letting go. Even sitting down and closing your eyes, you're letting go of looking at things. You know, you're letting go of taking any actions, of calling anybody, of checking your email. You know, look at all the things you've let go of. You've let go of going to the refrigerator. So um, I suggested on the handout, and I hope everybody got a copy of this, that um, you commit to sitting ideally twice a day, but uh, if only once a day is possible, uh, do that. Um, let's go through how long you should meditate for. You should meditate all day. <laughs> But if you don't have that much time, you could meditate for a couple hours. Or if you don't have that much time, you could meditate for half an hour. If you don't have that much time, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 10 minutes. If all you can do is sit down and close your eyes and take a breath, you've fulfilled your commitment. Okay. Um, The longer we meditate, the longer we are practicing letting go. And uh, also, the more our concentration tends to develop. You'll notice, if you hang with it, that after, often after 20 minutes or so, uh, there's a kind of settling that can happen. Uh, at, and at different stages, uh, there will be different kind of levels of, of kind of feeling like, oh, right, I've kind of gotten here a little bit more. So it's good if you can hang in for a little longer. Uh, if it's really hard for you to meditate right now, but you're really committed to it and you have the time, start with 10 minutes. You know, see if you can work with that and then, and then work your way up. Um, so we're just about out of time. Um, and I have no idea if I covered step one or not. Um, <laughs> sort of just... Uh, I, I know we could probably spend the eight weeks just talking about this. Um, I want to mention, if you don't already know, that the way that Spirit Rock uh, takes care of their teachers is by asking you to support us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.